So about 1950 years ago, there were a group of Christians huddled together in a room, and they were all, hey, hi, book, thanks. They were all huddled together, kind of terrified about what was going on, because Jesus had just been crucified, and uh, they have kind of been ostracized by the community, and, and were afraid of crucifixion themselves, afraid of torture themselves. And something miraculous happened. Today is, is known on the Christian calendar as Pentecost Sunday. And what happened that day was that the Holy Spirit fell on this community of people who were cowering together and somehow released, like, courage in them, released, released power in them. And they immediately went out and started talking about the fact that God had revealed himself through a man, Jesus. And a lot of them faced off with torturous deaths. They, they just did. That's the reality. They were crucified upside down. They were filleted alive. They were drawn and quartered. They were dragged behind horses. They were beaten with clubs. But somehow this power entered them and made them unafraid. And the clip, if you're anything like me, it's a little, it's, it's a little squirmish to watch somebody think about climbing a tightrope between the World Trade Center towers, but that's exactly what happened. And uh, my, my take is that if, if you're going to be touched by the Holy Spirit of God, if you're going to be in commun communion with the divine at all, at some point God is going to ask you to take those steps that make you squirmish. He's going he's to ask you to do things that seem impossible. And, they, and for, you, for you, they are impossible. He's going to ask you to put everything on the line. 1973 was a vintage year. My understanding is that every cool person was born in 1973. And uh, that was the year that this guy, Philippe Petit, was planning what he called his great coup. And the great coup is, you see, reflected in that movie clip, that movie trailer we just watched in the movie The Walk that came out just a few years ago. And in, on August 7th of 1974, his coup had been accomplished. He had snuck into the building. He had worn disguises as a contract worker. He had gotten an inner source. And, and he had strung a tight wire between the two towers of the Twin Towers. And it's, it, as you saw in the clip, it's an abominable height. I mean, it's just kind of an unthinkable. You, you just absolutely lose perspective looking out over the rim. And yet he walked a tightrope across those two towers. And not only that, but he, was, he walked across it, and then he walked across it again, and then walked across it again. And the cops came and were on both sides, so he was evading the cops by walking the wire, and then he would take his post and flip it around and turn around on the wire and walk back, and he would walk all the way across again. And then he got to where he was sitting down and lounging out, and you see, you see like, like this, him lay, a, a tightrope walker, I'm not sure this is him, but laying down, and all of that at this unthinkable height where the crowd below could just barely make out a speck of a person. And afterwards, he, was, he, 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 he faced his time, but he also was, was given a lifelong access to the observation tower of the, of the Twin Towers. So, so somebody out there in authority said, well, you can't really do that, but man, we thought that was really cool. And he, he, he was a brave guy that had a mission, and, and I'm convinced that God would call us to take risks, not foolish risks, as we'll talk about, but he's going to ask you to do stuff that you think you can't do that are going to require a great coup in your life. It's going to require hard work. It's going to require discipline. It's going to require practice, and it's going to require putting yourself on the line. We're doing, we've, we've done an on-again, off-again series called The Red Stuff, where we examine the red-letter print of the Bible. And if you get a red-letter print Bible, what the red letters are are the words of Jesus. And if you read the words of Jesus, you're going to consistently see this idea that we're supposed to lay our lives down that we're supposed to risk sacrifice, that even we're supposed to face off with danger. And he tells this parable where he talks about what the kingdom of God is like. And it's, it's the parable of the talents, for those of you familiar. And he, he basically says that people were given, in those days a talent was a coin. So the, the business manager gives people coins. But he says it will be like, the kingdom of God will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. 
To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he had the two talents, made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master... Those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing the extra five talents and saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. And his master says to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also went to the one with the two talents who came forward saying, Hey, I I made you two more talents. And to to the, the same response, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. But he who had given one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him who gave it to him who was the ten talents. For to everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And this parable is in some sense a parable about risk. It's a parable about God is going to give you gifts, talents. He's going to give you resources. And you have the option of trying to do something with those talents. It's dangerous to, to, to do that. It's dangerous to go into business. There's always risks associated but, he said, but then there was this one guy who said, I'm too afraid. I'm not going to do it, so I'm just going to go bury my talents in the ground, and I'm going to let them sit there so that at least I'll have my talent to offer when the end comes. And God seems to be pretty displeased with that guy. He seems to be pretty pleased with those who will lay something on the line and do something with the life he has given them, and somewhat displeased or even greatly displeased with those who just sit on the sidelines and watch. Some of the most famous golf courses in the world, uh, Pebble Beach is one of them. The 17th at Pebble Beach is a perfect example of this. Have what they call high-risk, high-reward golf shots. And so you see this, a tee shot. And, and what this is, is the fairway that she's aiming for wraps around this lake and extends to the other side. So, so chances are back in this corner is, is the ultimate target. So now she has the option. Does she play a 7-iron and lay up over here on the safe fairway? Because a 7-iron shot is, is safer. It's an easier shot. It doesn't have as much distance. So if you're off by a little bit, it doesn't go as far out of bounds. Or does she let the big dog eat, so to speak? That's what they call hitting the drivers, the big dog. Does she just let it rip and, and hope she can clear? And so these risk-reward shots basically say, if you want to go for it and you pull it off, if you're a good golfer and you can hit a long shot, you can end up much, much closer to the hole. Or you can play it safe and just chip it out over here, and take a couple extra shots to get to your destination. My, one of my favorite golf courses I've ever played is the Harry Musato Golf Course in Macomb, Illinois. It's a university course there. And this is, a, this is a dialogue of that. It's a very similar type tee shot. You can see the tee boxes here on the bottom left. There's a black tee box you may or may not be able to make out. There's a purple, yellow, and red. And those are progressively for your, your, your skill level as a golfer. But to, to launch a shot from the black tee box over the trees on the other side of the lake, you have to clear in the air 270 yards. Now, for an amateur golf, cor- golf player, that is a heck of a golf shot. That is a tough, tough shot to make. So amateur golfers are stuck with the idea, well, how far am I willing to go? How far am I willing to risk? Or do I just want to play the safe shot and kick it off to the side? And in some sense, 
My, my idea today is that you are, your life is that tee shot. You're, you are in front of life, and there's risks and rewards you can take. And you can take the easy path. You can take the layup path. You can take this one that well, it may, may get you there eventually. Or you can let the big dog eat, and you can go for it. And I'm of the opinion that God is a let the big dog eat kind of God. He, he, wants, he wants to challenge you. And, and ultimately what we'll find is you're not the one making the tee shot anyway. You're not the one in charge of this thing. It's not based on your talents and your abilities, what God wants to do through you. And so if you serve a big God, you can take the big golf shot. I'm going to share just three, three quick reasons why I think you ought to live a life of risk. I'm going to talk about some three risks, three rewards, and then I'm going to talk about a couple things that are going on right here in the church and in our community that I think require some risk. Number one, the way of the cross is the way of risk. Jesus said, you know, he said, if anyone would follow after me, let him come after me and let him take up his cross and follow me. It means the path of the Christian is the path of death. It means laying down yourself, dying to yourself, and living for something outside of yourself. And I think about Jesus all the time, how terrifying it would have been, because he knew he was going to a horrible death. From the time he was a little boy, it seems seems probable that he knew that this crucifixion thing was going to happen. He he talked about it openly with his friends, I will be crucified, I will die. And crucifixion was no joke. And And he could have cowered. He could have played the safe shot. He could have backed away, but he didn't. Christians believe that he was fully God and fully man. And as fully man... He would have been, there would have been that gripping fear in uh, uh, approaching him and attacking him that would have approached and attacked all of us in those circumstances. And yet he went forward. He went forward and preached the good news of a good God who loves people and who, who has sent his servant to change lives. He, he went out and he, he bucked the norm. We've been talking about women's rights in Jesus. He, he bucked women's rights. He bucked racism. He bucked slavery, in my opinion. He, he bucked all the system that was in place and made a whole lot of people so mad that they wanted to terrorize him and kill him. And yet, he moved forward. And the second thing is, there's, there's really no safe zone. If you're a golfer like me, you can aim for that little patch over here on the right side. It's safer. It's a 160-yard shot. It's a 7-iron. You let her rip. But if you're anything like me, you don't always hit a 7-iron straight. And there's hardly any worse feeling in golf than to play the safe shot and end up in the woods. And it happens a whole lot. But the reality is, all of us live in a system that will never be safe. There's no such thing as security for a human being. It just doesn't exist. And so we strive and work and try to become secure. And we strive and work and and try to have stuff that makes us feel safe and puts a roof over our head. And the reality is that roof is about this thick. The reality is there's no walls around you that are ever going to keep you safe. There's no material things that can ever hold you and keep you from what is ultimately going to happen, which is your death. There's no, there's no safe place for a human being. In Ecclesiastes, it says, He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. And he's talking about farmers here. And if there was a farmer who said, Well, we were thinking about planting today, but it's a pretty cloudy day. It might rain. We might get rained on. I think I'm going to hold off until it's a little bit safer. If they're observing the wind, they're saying, well, it's a windy day. We probably don't want to put our seeds down today because they might get blown around. And if a farmer consistently lived that way and said, uh, today's just not the right day for risk, nothing ever happens good for the farmer. Ecclesiastes is saying you've got to face off with danger if you're going to live this life and live it well. Helen Keller said in the long run, avoiding danger is no safer. The fearful are caught as often as the bold. There's no place safe. But I do want to encourage you to play from the correct tees. If you're an amateur golfer, trying, trying for that 270-yard tee shot over the trees and over the water is probably not wise. And so when we talk about risk, 
I believe scripture teaches the idea of calculated and practiced risks. It doesn't mean you're foolish. So, so some of you have seen Happy Gilmore. So that doesn't happen. That's why it's funny, right? It's because nobody can swing a golf club like that and hit a shot like that ever. That shot is absolutely humanly impossible. But what, a lot of times when we talk about risk, people want to do something foolhardy. And that's not what we're talking about here either. Scripture talks about calculated risks. It's, and in some sense, it, what you're looking for is a partnership with a business partner who happens to be omnipotent. You're looking for a partnership with a God who will take you through, but you've got to follow his lead. It doesn't mean you can just go do what you want and, and think what you want and be what you want and that you're going to hit that tee shot across the water every single time. That's not what we're talking about here. The, the Bible teaches a progression so when, when David, everybody knows the story of David and Goliath, and Andrew talked about it uh, a few weeks ago. When David faced off with the giant Goliath, this passage came first. He said, man, so, so when he talks to the king, he says, look, I've, I've delivered, he was a shepherd boy. He says, I fought a lion, I fought a bear, I can take this giant. And so there was this progression that happened of risk. The first time he was fighting something a little bit easier, and apparently this giant was scarier than a bear or scarier than a lion, but he moved along a line of risk to arrive at the big risk that God wanted to happen. And then Proverbs teaches us that without, counsel, without wise counsel, plans fail. And it says that with many advisors, they succeed. And so you don't want to enter into crazy risk, hitting that tee shot just because you think you're strong. You need to practice. You need to work hard. You need to work with people who know what they're talking about and have wisdom in your life who can direct you and guide you. But you don't do so wrapped up in fear. You're, you're moving down a progression of risk and taking chances. And then I want to encourage you to assign proper value. And what I mean by this is if I'm, if I'm faced off with that tee shot at the Harry Mazzotto golf course, and I'm, I'm playing by myself today. I, I play golf by myself a lot. And I'm thinking about that shot, and I start getting nervous because I'm capable of that shot. One out of eight times I might hit that shot well. I'm capable of it, but my adrenaline pumps. I can be playing by myself. My adrenaline rises a little bit. Because it's risky. I'd be much safer just kicking, hitting a 230-yard drive over here a little safer, and then I take two shots to get in. But I still get nervous. And I have to ask myself, what am I really honestly nervous about? I'm not a great golfer. Nobody cares about my reputation as a golfer. I'm, I'm probably not that day shooting the best score of my life, which really is just bragging rights anyway. And technically, all I'm out is about a $2 or 50-cent golf ball, depending on what I paid. But there's this nervousness that's with it. And in some sense, we have to come to that conclusion about our life. The Psalms teach us that surely every, every man's life is but a breath, a mere breath. At some point, the gospel of Jesus demands that we come to grips with the fact that we're really not risking much, that this life is kind of nothing, that there's something else out there that we need to be looking at. And when we get a hold of that, that gospel message, that gospel truth, that this life isn't all there is, there's way more than this, then it allows you to take calculated risks. Three things that you're going to risk is, number one, you're going to risk your reputation. So you may be in here today, and, and my question to you is, what is it that God's asking you to do to step out on that girder that's scary? What is he asking you to do that you're afraid to do? And in some sense, if you're at the beginning of your Christian journey, it could be something as simple as being baptized. You might be afraid of being baptized because what will people think? What will my family think? You might be afraid of praying in public or, or even praying in, in private. You may have had some bad prayer experiences, and it kind of terrifies you to even think about addressing God. And they may be simple things like that that right now they terrify you. 
Well, God is asking you to step out and asking you to do more than you've ever done. Or you may have been a Christian for some time, and he's asking you to step out and do something that seems ridiculous, some kind of missionary, move, move to Africa, move, move to the Middle East and risk your family's lives. God's not above asking for those things. But whatever the things are, you're going to risk your reputation with people who are going to think you're nuts. If you get baptized, some people are going to think you're nuts. If you take your family to the Middle East, people are certainly going to think that you're nuts. You're going to risk your reputation. But what is your reputation really? I mean, is it who you are? Or is it a perception of who you are based on people who, or pe that people are basing on stuff that they don't necessarily understand or, or come to grips with well? Henry Ford, Henry Ford said, you can build your reputation on what you are, you cannot build your reputation on what you're going to do. Your reputation needs to be built on what you do. I was going to say do-do, but then I know there's a bunch of people in here that are gigglers. See, they're giggling now. It's, it, it's based on action, your reputation is. And you need to do actions that change your reputation because you want to be somebody who has a reputation of being one with Jesus. If that, that, that's almost the whole of life, is that I walk hand in hand with Jesus, and it's okay for people to know that. And at some point, if you're going to do the Jesus thing, you've got to let go of reputation. You've got to let go of what you, what you, think, about what other, what you think about what other people think about you. You've got to risk your potato. Now, this is obviously a quote from a hobbit. Four of you understand. That's wonderful. You're going to risk your comfort. It's super easy to coast through this life, to hit the seven iron shot and just try to get a paycheck, try to make sure there's food on your table, make sure your kids get to go to school, make sure you have a car that gets you from point A to point Z. And in some sense... It's a life that, uh, in pursuit of comfort and security, and security that is elusive and unavailable. At some point, you're going to have to let go of your reputation, and you're going to have to let go of comfort as a god. That just has to happen if you're going to be a dynamic follower of Jesus. And I'm not saying God's mercy isn't on everybody, because I believe he is. But if you're going to be in touch with God, he's going to say, you've got to get off the couch. You've got you to make some changes there. The very famous novel and Netflix series, 13 Reasons Why, now contains this quote. He says, a lot of you care, just not enough. All of us talk about caring. All of us talk about wanting to do something to change the world, but very few actually put their lives on the line and, and, and sacrifice their comfort to make a difference for others. And ultimately, it means risking your life. And it, I mean that in a metaphorical sense and in a literal sense, is that you're, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you've got to lay down who you are. You've got, to, you've got to give yourself over to something. Dick Brogdon wrote what's called the uh, Live Dead Journal, and the entire concept of the journal is that we're supposed to live as if already dead. We're supposed to risk ourselves in such a way that we've already, we're already in the grave. People in the grave aren't scared. And he says this. He says, dying to self gives us an appetizer of the glorious joy that will be ours forever when we awake from this earthly slumber. And that's what this is, he would describe. He would say, this, is, this whole deal is kind of nothing. There's something else out there. So risking, so what you're going to have to risk is your reputation, your couch potato lifestyle, and your very life. If you're going to walk out on the girder that God would call you to, in some sense it's laying, laying yourself down. But what are the rewards? Number one, you'll be rewarded with fearlessness. Once you're dead, you're dead. Once you're gone to yourself, once you've given up security, given up on security entirely, then fearlessness comes. It comes naturally. And if you're the person who's brought out the driver and hit the big dog shot over and over and over and cleared the water, or even 
even get this, even failed many times, you start to realize that failure doesn't destroy you. Failure doesn't own you. Failure doesn't, failure doesn't set who you are. And really, you haven't lost that much. And when you realize what's on the line and what's on the line really isn't all that, fearlessness follows. Something about taking risks and going through with risks backed by activity develops courage in people. The psalmist says this, he says, Though an army encamp around me, my heart shall not fear. Though a war rise against me, yet I will be confident. This person who knew his God says, I have no reason to be afraid. You'll be rewarded with accomplishment. Think about the most accomplished people that you would describe, whoever those people are, whether, whether they're political leaders, whether they're religious leaders, whether they're activists, whether they're just family people. Odds are they've sacrificed. Odds are they didn't take the chip shot, but they put themselves on the line to accomplish something. And I think, I think that's inherent in all of us, is that God designed you and you and you and you and you and me, designed us to do something with this life, with these talents that he's given us, and not just to bury them, not just to hide them, and certainly not to spend our entire lives eating chips on the couch. He's put this hunger for accomplishment in us, and accomplishment follows risk. You've got to put it on the line to accomplish anything. Steve Jobs said this, he said, those who are crazy enough to think they can change the world usually do. It's the, pe it's the people who don't care or the people who don't think they can that do nothing. But it's the, it's the activists, it's the ones who think they can promote change, think they can help, and are willing to put themselves on the line that actually make changes in the world. And then finally, you'll be rewarded with a divine connection. If you want to think like God, you're going to have to think in terms of risk. If you want to think like God, you're going to have to think in terms of what is impossible for me. I've heard it said many times that if you don't have a dream that's impossible for you, your dream isn't big enough. God wants to fill you full of dreams and fill you with his passions and his desires for the world and for what's going on in the world. And that is scary. God is a consuming fire. If you, but if you, want, if you want to be in touch with him, if you want a divine connection, it's gonna, there's, there's, there's some scary stuff there that you'll have to overcome. You have to take risks. But Jesus said this, he said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. And in the, in the ellipse there, he says, not as the world gives do I give to you. But then he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. And I think if you're a person who takes risks, you're going to see God show up. And when you become a person who has taken risks and has seen God shown up, now you're connected with him and fearlessness comes. And the accomplishments that he has for your life starts to come. But it starts off with something scary like the walk. It starts off with going out into a place where you're looking down and you're thinking, I can't control this. I can't make this happen. But God will come along you, alongside you and make it happen. So I'm going to briefly talk about a couple things that we've got going on, risks that I personally am taking with, with some other friends here in the church, and then uh, some potential risks that are on the horizon that you guys have the opportunity to get involved with. And this is in no way saying, the, this, this isn't meant as a pitch, except to illustrate that we need to be people who are putting stuff on the line. And I've heard, I've heard as, it goes the church, as it goes the pastor, so goes the church. I hope that you guys will consistently see me take risks. I may crash and burn. This whole project that we're working on right now may just dive bomb. It may be terrible. But we're willing to go out there and try. And then this other thing that we have an option to do might be a life-changing opportunity for one or some of you. So number one, where to start here? So Greg Brodsky texts me two Saturdays ago at about 8 in the morning. Is Greg in here? Where's Greg? 
Hi, Greg. Thank you, man. Thank you so much. So Greg texts me at like 9 in the morning with a brief comment that says, we should buy this place together. And he sends me pictures and a link to this piece of property. So this piece of property is on Taylorsville Road, south of the Waterson, by like two minutes. I mean, it is a prime, prime location. It's on six and a half wooded acres. It's beautiful. It's a 9,500 square foot mansion, basically. So he texts me, and he says, we should buy this place together. And I, don't, I still don't know if he was half joking, half serious. I think he's somewhere in between. I think partially serious, partially joking. The short of it is, six days later, we had it under contract. And now, eight days after that, both of us have, I've, I've sold my residence, he's sold a rental property, and we've partnered with other people to make this thing happen, and we have it under contract at a great price. So we're starting a commune, basically, is, is what it comes down to, is I'm pulling, so, so we're affording a place that we couldn't possibly afford on our own, but by living in Christian community and pulling our resources, we're able to make something happen that is kind of beyond our dreams, actually. And so the reasoning is some of us, and, and here, here's the thing. So when I was writing, what they teach you as a writer is that you have to learn what is marketable. So you, you ride whatever wave is, is flowing at the moment in writing. So for a long time there, Amish Christian novels were the big deal, right? And so if you knew you wanted an editor to grab your stuff and it would sell like hotcakes, man, get into Amish fiction. I mean, that was just one of the things. And in, liter in the literary world, there's always, there's always the next wave. There's always whatever the next big thing is coming out. And I'm of the opinion that God does stuff globally and starts to mix things up and move in people's lives and, and direct people because he has the next big wave that's coming of what he is wanting to accomplish. And I've had multiple conversations over the last few years about this idea of communal living for, for a couple reasons. Mostly it's just because we believe God wants people to live in families and not everyone has a traditional family. And we live in a world that less and less people exist in traditional families. Um, single people in the church get kind of a hidden bad rap. We've talked about that before. Single, single people, especially if you're starting to hit 30, then the church says, well, what's wrong with you that you're not married yet, right? There's, there's no space in the church for 30-somethings for who are single, even though many 30-somethings choose to be single. And then you've got this other camp of people who are 30-somethings and don't want to be single and just are and find themselves in a place that is partially lonely, and then we've talked about the LGBT community in here, and we've talked about how there are, and, and I'm not saying every LGBT person thinks this way, but there are LGBT Christians who have a conservative sexual ethic and are trying to sort out how to reconcile their sexuality with their faith, and they have no real community to do that in. Even if they arrive at different conclusions than, say, a conservative church would, they don't have any place to process that because the church automatically ostracizes people who are LGBT. And so social theorists today that I'm reading and that I've read for, for a couple of years are starting to, to, to think along the lines of communal living being a great wave that God is doing for these two, for the, in these two areas, is for single people and for LGBT people who are sorting out their sexuality. The problem is it's going to take somebody stepping out on a girder and saying, okay, I'm willing to live in a commune. I'm, I'm going to be a, a guy that lives in a commune and homeschools my kids. I mean, I don't know how to deal with the, the, the thoughts that people are going to have towards me. But and it's scary, and it's scary to move in with a bunch of people that, that I don't want to live with other people in general. I like my family and our nucleus. I like what we have. I like that we can sit down and watch Netflix and nobody bothers us. That's not what communal living will be at all. 
But communal living will allow people to live in families that maybe don't have families now. And it will, it will do great stuff for my kids. It'll do great stuff for my family. And we've already talked about having weekly meetings where we get together and just love each other and serve each other and, and have Bible studies and, and grow together. But it's a financial risk. It's huge. We're putting a whole lot into this. It's a personal risk. It's a social risk. It's, it's, it's difficult. In fact, even this morning, I told a couple of you about it, and your response was, well, that's interesting. <laughs> right? I mean, it, it's weird. We're, our reputation is on the line, but we're willing to do it. And, and part of it is that I think we're in touch with what God is doing. I think we're in touch. We're on to something here. And we get to live in a mansion, which I would never buy a mansion. I could be the wealthiest guy on earth, and I would never buy a property like this. But to buy it in community, where we pool our resources and live together, it feels right. I'm, I still might be wrong about that. I'm asking God, I'm God, God, if this isn't right, if this is greedy, if it's off, it's a, if it's a terrible idea, if it's unwise, if it's stupid, man, shut the doors on this thing. But, but we listed our house two days ago, and within six hours got our first full-price offer, basically. We, got, we had eight showings and two offers, and we are under contract after less than 24 hours. Greg sold his rental property in less than 24 hours. It's just all the pieces are fitting into place. Molly Bond and, and Craig, where, where's Craig? Is he back here? I think it's, These guys did a great job of listing our properties and making it happen. So if you guys need a realtor or a photographer, talk to these guys. But it just, bam, 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 all the pieces falling into place, and it just feels right. We could be wrong. We could crash and burn, and it could be a terrible idea. But we're moving forward. We're taking risks. So that's where I'm at right now. That's where some of my friends are at right now. And then about three months ago, I was sitting at a lunch with a pastor from Cincinnati. And the pastor in Cincinnati has a church of about 1,000 people. And I, I think, if I remember right, jokingly telling him, if Daylight Church ever bombs, if we ever go out of business... I said, I think I'm going to start a food truck business. And I'm just, I've just talked about that and thought about it, that a food truck would be kind of cool. And I'm joking with him, and he says, well, I happen to have a food truck with me or, uh, at the church right now that we're not sure what we're going to do with. <laughs> so I said, I said, okay. He says, and my staff really wants me to donate it. But he says, I need a church sign, and we need the money. I said, okay, right, cool, great story. And the, the, the short of the story, there's more to it than this, but they, they had a guy in their church who was passionate about feeding the homeless and talked them into buying the $60,000 food truck. And he was going to start a ministry and go into Cincinnati and feed homeless people. Well, anyway, they, they buy the food truck, they fix it up, they paint it white so they can make it whatever they want it to be, and the guy leaves the church and leaves them high and dry. So they've got this $60,000 elephant in their church parking lot that they have nobody that cares about. So he's been trying to sell it, and it doesn't sell. So he tells me, he says, my staff's been telling me I should give it away. He said, I would probably give it to you, right? We have this personal friendship. And I said, well, I said, consider us your D plan. Uh, you know, go through A, B, and C. If you can get your money out of it, do it. But if you've still got it later, let me know. Well, I can't stop thinking about this food truck, and this is just a food truck picture. It's not the food truck. It's just a food truck. So I text him like two months later, and I said, Terry, I said, do you... I can't stop thinking about this food truck. I don't even know what that means, but hi. You know, <laughs> do, you, do you still have it? And he texts, so I see him two or three days later. He said, man, 
He said, your text blew up my staff meetings like crazy. He said, he said Danny wants to give it to you. Danny's one of his people. And he says, so-and-so wants to give it to you. And he said, but we, we need this sign. And I, I said, that's cool. We're your D plan. I said, I said, if it ever comes down to you want to get rid of the food truck, we could figure something out to do with it. And anyway, about a week and a half ago, he texts me and says, if you want the food truck, it's yours. So we have this opportunity to get a hold of this $60,000 food truck that they've got mechanically sound and ready to roll. The issue is I don't want to have anything to do with it. I've got other, I got other stuff going on. I, I'm busy. But I've got all of these kind of ideas, so I'm going to spew some of my ideas on you guys and see if any of it catches for just a moment, okay? How cool would it be? Have you guys heard of the Table restaurant here in town? So the, the Table is a pay-what-you-want model restaurant. Um, just slightly on the west side of town, west of, of, of Louisville proper. And they feed the homeless. So when you go into the table, it's excellent food. And at the end of the meal, they don't bring you a check. They just show you what you got and give an average expected price. And then you pay anything you want. So if you want to pay 6 bucks for a $50 meal, you can. If you want to pay 120 bucks for the same $50 meal, you can. But what, the reason they do that is because homeless people can come off the streets and eat there for nothing whenever they want to. And what happens is more affluent people can pay more. So any, I think the way that works is they take the average of what it costs them, and then everything above that they take a percentage of. I don't know exactly how it works, but it's a pay-what-you-want model to serve the homeless population. And then I'm thinking, well, we could, we could make it a business. We could turn it over to somebody. So let's say Ernesto gets fired up about it today and says, man, I've always wanted to run a food truck, man. I can do some waffle cones and ice cream or whatever. I don't, I don't care. But let's, so one of you or three of you get super excited about this, and we have some people that are actually kind of staking claim already, but we're b developing a team. So you go downtown, and you go to Thunder Over Louisville, and you set up on a street corner, and you go to all the festivals, and you drive everywhere within four, four, four hours of here and put on festivals. Food trucks can make 250, 500 grand a year if they're done right. There's lots of money opportunity here, and it would start with a foundation of free, which is free is always good, right? So what we're thinking about is finding somebody who would be passionate about starting a food truck, running this ministry, collecting a proceed of the profits, or a percentage of the profits. We don't know what that would be. It might be 60%. It might be 80%. That 20% will go to charity, and that there will be this expectation that at least twice a month they will drive downtown to where the homeless populate, and they will feed the homeless. So these are the things we're thinking about. We're also thinking about the fact that we can employ people in recovery. We can employ people who have been out of jobs. We can employ people who need jobs that pay better than minimum wage, and we can teach them the trade and even do profit sharing one day. So all these ideas, right, I'm an idea guy, but I just can't do this. So we're out of time. I'm asking you to think about it. I'm, I, I'm, and these, the risk sermon and this just happen to coincide. They just happen to come in on the same day. But if there's anybody here that you say, that really gets my juices flowing and I'd like to be a part of that, there's sign-up sheets on the next table right now. So on the way out, if you're interested in being a part of this team that processes what in the world do we do with this absolutely free food truck, we'd like to put that team together and get that team started today. We did a song today called I Shall Not Want. From the love of my own comfort and from the fear of having nothing, from a life of worldly passions, deliver me, O oh God. That should be our cry. That should be our prayer. From the need to be understood from the need to be accepted, from the fear of being lonely. Deliver me, O oh God. Deliver me, O oh God. I'm convinced God wants to take you places that you don't think you can go. I'm convinced he wants to challenge you and take you out 
stepping out in places that seem completely out of your control. And I want to encourage you to find what those places are and take the risk. You're not really actually risking much.